Alright, so please open up your Bible to the 8th chapter of Judges. The section that we have for us tonight is another long one, another long explanation of what is happening to Gideon, with the judge, who is the judge during this time. Uh, we are, and to begin tonight actually, we're going to think of a rhetorical question, or I want to ask a rhetorical question, since we're approaching nearly one year of state-mandated mandated lockdowns during this pandemic or pandemic, whatever you want or to call scam-demic. it. Scamdemic. That might be another one. So, the rhetorical question is... Rhetorical means don't answer. You don't need to answer it. Yes, that's what that means. Don't oh, say your answer. Rhetorically, do you feel safe? Do you feel like things are under control? Do you have peace regardless of what is going on in this world or in your life in general? Well, the answer for many people right now in our society is no. I'm not simply speaking of the unbelieving portion of this culture, of this world. I'm not speaking of only the lost. There are many professing Christians, members uh, in good standing at local churches, who because of COVID don't feel like they are very safe right now. People are scared. Uh, Some people are staying home. Some people avoid social gatherings. Some people are avoiding church even. Some people believe that wearing a mask is going to make them more safe. Some people believe that wearing two or three or four masks at the same time is going to make them even more safe. That keeps your sickness from getting to other people. Baker's doesn't, yes. Some people are, are so scared that it seems like they're just not willing to go out until there's like a cure for death. Or something. It's, it's a weird time that we are, are, are living in. Now, this sermon that we have for us tonight is not about COVID and fear and government overreach or our response to, to those things. Though it would be appropriate to do something like that, of course. It's just a convenient example for us to consider. Uh, but there are many things we could consider and bring up in thinking about the desire for safety and our response to it as Christians. And in our passage for this evening, the issue of feeling safe is brought up, as well as a few other things. So we'll address those things as we get to them in the text. But let's read our text first, and then um, we'll pray afterwards. So follow along with me. The word of the Lord, beginning at verse 4 in Judges chapter 8. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread, to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmanna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nova and Jogwaha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba, or Ziba and Zalmanna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmanah, and he threw them all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle by the ascent of Herez. 
And he captured a young man of Sakoth, and he questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Sakoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sakoth and said, Behold, Zavah and Zalmanah, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zavah and Zalmanah already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sakoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zavah and Zalmanah, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zavah and Zalmanah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zavah and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would help us to have understanding. We know that, Lord, we can hear your word with our ears just because of your providence in your life, that we all have hearing that works. But for us to truly understand and take from it what you desire, we need you, Holy Spirit, to turn our ears on, as it were. So help us to truly to hear with the faith and from it to know you more and to know our need of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So another long passage. And we see in it that the battle has been continuing. Continuing. The battle that Gideon had with the Midianites is will come to an end in our in our passage. The Midianites have technically been defeated and pushed back, but Gideon and his army of three hundred are still pursuing them. Uh, we read last week about how Ephraim became involved in that pursuit. And there's some debate actually as to the timing of these events and the events that we now read up. There's debate about the timing of the events with Ephraim and then these events that we just read just now. Some commentators, and actually a, comment, a commentator by that, do you know what preachers mean when they say commentators? We have these books that people have wrote that are called commentaries. They're like cheat sheets for pastors. Like cheat sheets for Smart pastors. <laughs> I mean, that's not totally far off, I guess. These are you know, scholars, people who have studied the word for a long time, and they, they, they write about a book of the Bible and about every single verse, getting down. Some are more technical than others. Some are more homiletical, meaning they're kind of like for preaching or they're basically preaching itself, but others are very technical. So there's all, there's, there's many. Some are really good, some are trash, and you want to stay away from them. But as far as what commentators think about these events, they debate as to whether the, what order these things came in. Uh, meaning that these events with Sakoth and Penuel happened before the events with Ephraim. And perhaps, if that's true, perhaps the reason for that is because of the differences that we see in Gideon between the two accounts. With Ephraim, in the account in verses 1 through 3, Gideon was wise, he was humble. In our text that we have tonight, well, he's a different man. He's seemingly a different man, perhaps a different man. And commentators debate um, and differ concerning his actions even as well, too. Were they good or not? Well, we'll think about that some ourselves. Nevertheless, the point in our narrative at this point, Gideon and his army have crossed over the Jordan River. And they're tired. Uh, you can imagine it, I would think. 
there's only 300 of them, 301 of them, and they've been chasing this much larger army the whole time. They're there retreating, the army's retreating, they're following them. And when they cross over the Jordan River, they end up being in the land that was allotted to the tribe of Gad. So the battle is taking place in the, in the piece of land in the nation of Israel from, in, a, in a portion that belonged to the tribe of Manasseh, to Gideon's tribe. But in the time of the judges, if you were to look at like a map, you would see the Jordan River, and on the left side of it, on the west side of it, is Manasseh. On the right side is Gad. They almost line up perfectly. So that anywhere you would cross from Manasseh over the river, you'd end up in Gad, another tribe of Israel. Gad was another tribe. So when Gideon is about to engage the people of Zakoth and then also Peniel, these are his fellow Israelites that he's dealing with. These aren't... These, these are his kinsmen. This isn't a foreign people group. These aren't Canaanites. These are people that are in covenant with Yahweh just like he is. Uh, these aren't the enemies of Israel. This is Israel, the people of Sakath and, and Penuel. And Gideon asks for a simple request, doesn't he? He simply asks for some food. Just, it's just really like a little bit of food, honestly. His request to the people of Sakath is in verse 5. You can see it there. He asks for loaves of bread for the army. It's not like this is an army of 20,000 people, right? I mean, this is a whole city, and they're asking for some loaves of bread for a group of 301 men. It's not like they're asking for, you know, lamb shanks and all these, you know, steaks and wine. They're not asking for all of that. They're asking for some bread. It doesn't seem like a big request. And they're wanting to finish up this defeat of the Midianites. They're pushing, and they're pushing back against uh, the, the two kings, Zeba and Zalmana kings of, of Midian, you get these guys and there's no retaliation perhaps. You know, if they, if they get these kings and finish these kings off, then perhaps that means the Midianites will never come, come again against uh, Israel, against God's people. There's a personal motive for Gideon to get them as well. We'll address that later. But in our text, Sakoth refuses. They don't give them the bread that they need. The people of Sakoth tell Gideon in verse 6, he says, Are the hands of Ziba, or Ziba and Zalmana already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? In other words, what they're saying is, are these men already dead? Because if they're not already dead, then we're not going to help you. That's, that's what they're telling Gideon. And then Gideon responds in verse 7. It's a much different response than how he did respond to Ephraim. And you could just tell, and you could see his anger and his frustration. He says, well then... Or in other words, you know, if that's how you're going to be, then this is what you're going to have coming against you. He goes on to say, when the Lord had given, or when the Lord has given, so in other words, Gideon is still under the impression that God is the one who is leading him in this battle, that it is God who has the victory. He says, when, when the Lord has given uh, them into his hand, he's going to come back, and this is where it gets a bit surprising, He's going to, he tells the people of Gad, his kinsmen, that he's going to flail their flesh with the thorns of wilderness and with briars. It sounds violent, and it is violent. It sounds painful, and it would be extremely painful. But, and some commentators actually think that he's meaning to say that he's going to kill them in doing this. 
Others go with it being a severe punishment. Whatever it is, it's still striking to see Gideon acting this way towards his kinsmen. Granted, they aren't acting in love towards him either, but this is different for us as we observe Gideon's character growth, as we, as we observe you know, how he acts and responds in the situations that he's in. And then Gideon and the army continue east, and they go to another city of Gad. He requested food from the people of Penuel as well, and they responded as a, in a similar manner as the people of Sakoth. That's what we read in the passage. Apparently, there was a prominent building, probably like a fortress, like a tower for defense, a military type of a tower, and Gideon threatens to harm against the tower and the people when he comes back in peace, when he has the kings. So, what is going on here? Why is Sakath and Peniel acting as if helping Gideon would be a big burden on them? Why are they failing to do what they obviously should have done? I mean, for one... There's two good reasons why they should have just simply given him the bread that he wanted and fed the army. Uh, for one, Gideon is the judge of Israel. Charles Hodge's commentary on 1 Corinthians notes that to judge or to be a judge has to do with ruling. And so and kings were always judges. They made, uh, they made decisions. They ruled. Further, this idea is supported by the Midianite kings themselves because they say that Gideon and his brothers seem like kings to them. And so the people of Sakath and Peniel should have known to support Gideon just automatically from that fact alone. He was the one who was chosen by God to be the judge. When the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the tribes responded, we read about that way back in chapter, um, in, at the beginning of chapter 7, did it not reach these people? Like how? Certainly it did, but here they're not responding with the same support that many of the other tribes have. They certainly knew this was the man appointed by God. And the New Testament is filled with passages about honoring those who lead. The Gospels mention it. Uh, the, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit mentions it. Romans, Hebrews, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter, they all provide instruction at different levels and different areas about respecting those and honoring those who lead. It's not just a New Testament concept. Do you remember when the people rebelled against Moses in, during the wilderness and the wandering period? I think it was the people of, uh, it the K. Oh, I'm Kibor. Not them, not them. Um, Cryptos. Cryptocurrency? No, it's not that either. Um, anyways, God opened up the ground to swallow them, these people that rebelled oh, against them. Korah. There you go. Thank you. Uh, remember how David treated Saul? Remember Saul was the first king, the appointed king, and then David um, rose up in power and favor with the Lord, and rather than... Saul was jealous. Saul was wanting to kill David. He had multiple opportunities where he tried to like, throw a spear through him. And David survived every time. And David had multiple opportunities to kill Saul. And he didn't do it. Why? Because Saul was the appointed king by the Lord. Even, even though by that time, the Lord was raising David up. And even more, uh, the people of Gad, they know the law of God. Remember, if you can break the law of God down into two sets, into two tables... The first four commandments, the first table of the law, tell us how to love God. The second table tell us how to love our neighbor, or in other words, tell us how to love other people. And so the people of Gad knew this. In fact, the fifth commandment 
um, instructs all people everywhere how they are to hold those who lead in honor. That doesn't mean blind obedience and abject submission, mind you. You need to evaluate every situation, but in general, we are to give honor. Does anybody remember what the fifth commandment is? What is the fifth commandment? Honor, yeah, honor your father and your mother that your days, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving to you. So the, the general equity of that commandment, meaning the principles that we take from it, instruct us how we are to act lawfully towards those over us in whatever sphere of life we are in. You know, it mentions specifically mothers and fathers as just a child, but it has application to us as citizens living within a, a government. It has applications with, with, to us as people living under God. Now, it's pretty simple. If the people of Sakath and Peniel found themselves in the shoes of Gideon, wouldn't they want to be received with gladness? If they were in Gideon's shoes and they were asking for bread from Gideon, wouldn't they, and they were tired, and they were doing this good thing, wouldn't they want bread themselves? Wouldn't they want food? They would, right? They absolutely would. Now, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 40 says this. Uh, somebody comes up to D- Jesus asking him a question, and he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. So, you know, if they would have wanted this done to them, then, which of course they would have, then it is within reason to think that it would have been the right thing for them to do it for Gideon and his army. So what is it that is preventing Sakath and Pinot from doing what is right? Why is it that they're not loving their neighbor? Why is it that they find themselves now in violation of the law of Yahweh, right? If they're not loving their neighbor properly. But the answer is found in Sakath and Pinot's response. Though all we know is that Pinot answered in the same way as Sakath. We didn't get the specific reasoning. You see, in the minds of the people of Sakath, they, they felt like they were still in danger. And the reason being is because Zabah and Zalmana were on the loose still. They are overcome with fear, and because of that, they don't do what they should have done. They realize that they weren't safe because the Midianite kings were still alive. And so, just in theory, in, in possibility, what if Gideon and his army don't catch up to them? What if Gideon and his army do catch up to them? And mind you, there's only 300 of them versus 15,000, or 301 versus, I guess, 15,002 of the Midianites. Will they for sure beat them? Well, it's the promise of the Lord, so of course we know they would. But they are in fear. They, their, their worry is that Gideon will not win, and then the Midianites will hear about their support of Gideon, and then they'll come back and get revenge on them. And so they refuse to help Gideon. And to a lost person, to a person who doesn't know the Lord, that sounds rational. I mean, it might appeal to the Christian, to our, to our flesh even. And the reality, friends, is that the kind of safety that they're thinking of here is actually a myth. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating for foolishness. Uh, there, there is a difference. You know, so I, I wear a seatbelt in my car. When I'm going to cross the street, I look both ways to make sure that there's no cars coming. I save money just in case something happens. 
I don't let my kids play in the front yard of my house because they're all little and they're not cautious and people in my neighborhood seem to be competing for like the worst driver award all the time. It's horrible. And when, when COVID first hit back in March of 2020, I was in favor of not meeting at first based off of the info we had. Uh, when I had COVID a few weeks ago, I stayed home. But we need to remember as Christians, brothers and sisters, that this, this world that we live in, no matter how many precautions we take, is never truly a safe place. It's never, no matter what you do, it is never per- a perfectly safe place place. We live in a fallen world, a world under the curse that Adam brought into it. Even though we are redeemed and in Christ and the curse is no longer on us, we still live in a world that is filled with trials and troubles. Some of us will suffer persecution. Some of us may get cancer and die. Some of us may even get COVID and die, although that's extremely unlikely. It's highly survivable. Uh, You may get into a car accident and that That'll be it. My point is, is that we cannot, if we are to be obedient to God, be so concerned with our safety that we fail to obey and honor the Lord. We can't be so consumed with being safe that we then fail to do what is right, that we fail to be faithful to what God has commanded and asked of us. And the scriptures don't hide this from us at all. We read in Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, teach us to understand that we are not going to live forever, that at some point we're going to die. And so with that knowledge, we might live with wisdom. We might live every day for the Lord. You'll never be so safe that you can escape death. So you need to take into consideration all the different aspects that are impacting your decisions and how your actions will impact the world that you live in. Will, in the name of safety, will you do something that prevents you from doing what is right and good? That's what's happened here with the people of Sakath and Peniel. Their fear overcame them, and they rejected God's rule. They rejected God's laws, so they may, in fact, rule themselves. So they may do what they think will keep them safe. Or think about our memory verse for this month. Proverbs 16.9, the, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, that truly applies to every person that has ever lived or ever will live or ever has lived. Whatever we plan doesn't cancel out the plans of the Lord. Whatever it is that we plan to do, it doesn't override what God's sovereign will is, what his providential hand is going to accomplish throughout history. And we, the, the, I guess the unfortunate thing from our perspective, if you don't know the Lord at least, is that you don't know what God's will is. And so that might be a scary thing. But for the Christian, we should be a little bit different because we know that no matter what happens, uh, God is for us in Christ. Now, God, um, or the, the letter to the Hebrews tells us that God has appointed for every man to die but once. So from God's perspective, he's not surprised or in the dark concerning when our safety will run out. God himself is not safe. He's God. We can't approach him any way that we think that we might want to. There are many passages of scripture that testify to this. Think about 
Isaiah, you know, God is holy, we are not. When Isaiah was confronted with the holy nature of God, do you remember what he said? He said, he said, woe is me, for I am lost, or I am, I am undone. Uh, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, you know, God is not safe, but he's good. And as Christians, we especially know that to be true. We see God take Joseph, for example, through many hard trials in the book of Genesis, right? Pretty much the whole last half of the book of Genesis is devoted to God's providential dealings with Joseph. And God was with him throughout every step. Jesus promises that he will always be with us at the end of Matthew's gospel. And we have the promise from Romans that God will work all things, all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So we, so we can't always just live in this little bubble of safety that we try to control. Because even when we're in dangerous situations or situations that might pose a threat to us, we don't know the end, we're not sovereign like God, and we know that still as Christians at least, that God is with us through them all and he's working through these things for his glory, for our ultimate good. So we cannot, in the name of safety, fail to keep the law of God. We have not been given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, Romans 8 tells us. And that's what Sakoth and Penuel is guilty of. They are fearful, and their fear has caused them to be disobedient to God. And it's not like the law of God saves us. Of course, that's not it. It is Christ's death upon the cross that satisfies God's wrath against us. It is his righteous life that is accredited to us. That means that we can be righteous in God's sight. It's the third use of the law that's in view here. The third use of the law teaches that the moral law, as contained in the Ten Commandments, is binding for Christians and that it instructs us on how to live in service to God and gratitude for his grace shown in redeeming mankind. So the law is good for us to keep. It shows us how to be pleasing to God. And there's going to be consequence for Sakoth and Penuel and their failure to obey God, but we'll consider that when we get there. If we look back at our text, we see that we're given some more information about the battle. It's 300 people. This is um, verse 10. It's 300 people with Gideon opposing 15,000 men and two kings. So this is still a battle that would have no chance if not for the supernatural act of God, right? I mean, the first was crazy, 135,000 versus 300. But this is still 15,000 versus 300. It's still, by human means, an impossible amount to to get over. And Gideon knows that. He told the people of Sakoth that God was going to deliver these kings into his hands. And sure enough, God is faithful and the kings are captured, verse 12. But he doesn't kill them at this point. Apparently, he's going to drag these two kings before the two towns that denied him help. This seems to be a different Gideon. Remember how humble he was towards Ephraim. Remember how willing he was to live at peace with his brothers. But now... He's not willing to overlook an offense. And most commentaries fault Gideon at this point. Remember, vengeance belongs to the Lord, Deuteronomy 32, uh, 25, and also Romans 12, 19. James chapter 1 tells us that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so if we consult verse 16 to 21, we're going to see the anger of Gideon on display. The wrath of Gideon is before us. Now, it could be, theoretically, that Gideon is acting in righteousness, and he's being used by God to punish sin. 
Like I said, though, most modern commentaries, at least, don't go down that path, and the reason for that is found in verse 19. But I'm still not super sold on the idea that he was in the wrong, at least. But first, uh, verse 16 and 17, Gideon does follow through with the punishment he promised for Sakoth and Peniel. It's interesting that we read Gideon taught them a lesson. He could have taught them a lesson in humility, right? And humility and mercy and grace, but that's not the sort of lesson that he ends up teaching them. And as I said, some but not most commentators believe that Gideon killed the elders, the 77 men of Sakoth. And so I know that you would want the gory details, so I did some research as to what the briars and oh, everybody but Steve wants the gory details. I, that's right, I, I should have known that. The briars and the thorns. So what ancient history tells us is that this was a common way of punishing people. And what they would do is when captives were put to death, briars and thorns, briars are like these prickly plants, very sharp, and they would stick in you because they have these barbs on them. And so what they would do is they would lie people down naked, and then they would put these briars and thorns on their body, and then they would drag a heavy piece of machinery over them, like a farming, some sort of farming equipment, some sort of like uh, something that you would attach to like a couple of oxen to till the land. And so they would you know, crush them to death doing that. Or sometimes, another thing they would do with briars and um, these sorts of thorns is they would, they would whip them and they would stroke and, you know, with, this, with this lash on top of stroke with these thorns and these prickly plants. Uh, the, the, child, the Chaldee version has it, has it like this. It says, I will mangle your flesh on the thorns and on the briars. So it was an, it was an old punishment to, to tie the naked body in a bundle of thorns and then like roll it on the ground painful and a severe judgment even if they hadn't died i'm sure it's like one of those things where like you're in such pain that you you know some people have that response like i wish i was dead because it was so bad and when it comes to penule it's clear but it's hard to know um what happened there if it's all the people but it says that you know the tower came down and they killed the men of penule does that mean they killed every single man or does that mean they killed just some men just the elders we don't know then, verse 18, a question is posed to Ziba and Zalmana, and it's kind of strange, isn't it? He says, where are the men you killed at Tabor? Like, I mean, they're, they're dead, so they didn't go anywhere themselves, right? Uh, Gideon doesn't seem to know where they are. We don't know when they, when they were killed even. Perhaps in a previous raid on Israel, like in a previous year, before Gideon was a judge. Perhaps during the confusion and the scattering of the Midianites. We don't know. Whenever it happened... The Midianites perceived Gideon's brothers to be the son of a king, even though they weren't. And they view Gideon now as the king, which is not totally correct, because God is the king of Israel, right? Remember, it's, just, it's going to be in the next book in Samuel, where the Israel demands a king, and God punishes them and judges them for it. He tells them it's a bad idea. But So Gideon is not the king. God is the king. What was that, Clint? Right, just like all the other nations, just like the nations that they were supposed to get rid of. And so, but at the same time, you know, they're also not wrong because Gideon is the judge. So it's probable that they did the same thing that Gideon is doing to them. Taking the rulers, they perceived um, Gideon's brothers to be rulers. And then they brought them back to Midian, almost like a trophy, like a sign of their dominance. And then in verse 19, we see that Gideon is acting as the avenger of his brothers. Now, again, most modern commentators, they don't see Gideon's actions here as being good. But the older commentators 
did see some good in it because in, in Israelite law, there was what's called the goel, the avenger of blood. And so it was legal, it was within their rights that if someone, like someone killed somebody in your family, they, don't have, they didn't have police force. They didn't have like an army. Well, they had an army, but like not an official one. But there wasn't police. There wasn't the FBI, just certain things. And so let's say somebody killed Adam. It would be Sam, as his blood relatives, near blood relative, would have the legal right to take revenge on that person. In that case, he would be legally able to do so. Uh, if the Midianite kings, then we read though, if the Midianite kings had spared his brothers, he would have spared them. But since they didn't, he's going to repay them. An eye for an eye, as it were, right? Certainly, no one deserves grace. If, if someone said that they deserved grace, that they deserve it from God, then it would cease to be grace at that very moment. It would become meritorious. Because you can't deserve grace. If you deserve it, that means you did something to get it. Something you earned. But it is interesting, at least to note, that Gideon was willing to be gracious with people outside of Israel who would have kidnapped his brothers, yet keeping them alive, and probably did a whole bunch of other sins against the, the town as well. Yet he was harsh towards Gad. If anything, it's a simple reminder, friends, that our hope must never be in men. Our hope must only be in Christ through faith by grace. He's the only one who is beyond reproach in all things. He never wavers. There's no shadow of turning in God. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So now we're given some final details of the account. And rather than Gideon killing Ziba and Zalmanah himself, he asks his son to do it. Culturally speaking, it's not a weird thing to do. Um, but again, modern commentators, they're like, oh, how could he do this? What a bad dad. But I think culturally, for them back then, they lived in a, in a culture of war, and it, it wasn't as shocking for them. Considering they just killed like, 120,000 people, right? Yeah, good point. So not pastor, to mention their own countrymen. Not to right. mention yeah, their exactly. own countrymen, right? So Pastor John Gill says this. He says, Being the near kinsman of his father's brethren, whom these kings had slain, was a proper person to avenge their blood on them, meaning Gideon's son. And the, and the rather Gideon might order him to do it, for the greater mortification of the kings, or humiliation of the kings, to die by the hand of a youth, and for the honor of his son to be the slayer of two kings, and to ignore him to draw his sword against the enemies of Israel, and to embolden him to do such exploits. And then he says, But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared, because he was yet a youth. His not drawing its sword was not out of disobedience to his father, but through fear of the kings, not of their doing him any harm, being bound, because you know, they weren't able to attack him. But there was perhaps a ferocity as well as a majesty in their countenances, which made the young man timorous and fearful. fearful. It, was, it was too much for the young son to be able to handle. It didn't feel safe for him. And we all know that sort of feeling, so we could be gracious. But it does seem like Gideon was wanting to at least humiliate the kings by having his son do it, uh, because the kings themselves would rather have Gideon do it. They were kind of happy when the son didn't want to do it. They were like, Gideon, you, you be the one to do it. And so he does, and he takes these crescent ornaments from their camels, probably made out of gold, as a way of showing that Yahweh is greater than the gods of the Midianites. So the battle is now over. There are some concluding things that will happen in chapter 8 as we advance. But we see that God is faithful to his promises, isn't he? He's given over the Midianites to Gideon. Gideon is a judge. He's the deliverer who brought victory over an enemy that he couldn't overcome in his own power. And in that... 
we're reminded of Christ, our deliverer, who brought victory over death and sin, an enemy that is too powerful for us to defeat ourselves. And Gideon, although he points to Christ, he is a type of Christ. We see that Christ Jesus is far greater than Gideon. Not only is the deliverance that Jesus gives greater, but Christ himself is greater. The world that we live in is full of trials and difficulties. It's full of situations that are capable of causing us to be in fear. But there is true safety in Christ, friends. He's greater than anything in, this, in his creation, and nothing can overcome him. And he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. So trust him. Look to him. Be satisfied in him. Don't let your fear or your desire for safety override the clear commandments of what God has for us in his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and thank you for your holy law. And we know that we offend it all the time. And we are grateful that Christ is our mediator, that his perfect obedience is credited to us. But we pray for greater obedience, Lord, that you might be exalted, that we might live in a way that's pleasing to you. Forgive us of fear that we have. Help us instead to have a a holy fear of you, a right fear of you. For you are the true God, and none is greater than you. We thank you for loving us, God. Please sanctify us and conform us to Christ, all for his glory's sake. In his name we pray. Amen.